0: Welcome back to another episode of the Property Experience Podcast with Anna Porter and Nick Barlow. This podcast will take you behind the curtain of the property market nationwide.
1: So welcome back to the Property Experience. In today's episode, we're having a chat about structuring your portfolio and your finances to build a really robust property portfolio. So Yeah, there's a few things to consider in this around um, income properties versus growth properties and how you can get the most for your individual needs. We're going to have a bit of a general chat today. Um, I'm Anna Porter and this is Nick Barlow.
0: Hey Anna, how are you?
1: Good, thanks. How are you?
0: Good.
1: All right, so let's get into it. Nick, do you um, have a property portfolio yourself?
0: I do, yeah.
1: And how did you go about setting up that structure? Were you looking at things like, and you know, you're a valuer in a past life, so you understand property, mm-hmm. you always have. Mm-hmm. Did you look at getting stuff that has stronger growth, stronger income, a bit of both? What, where was your head at when you started building your portfolio?
0: Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to start somewhere and to start, most people if they're building a portfolio, it's going to be reliant on finance. Mm-hmm. So I started with the bank to find out how much I could borrow um, and what I could buy for that kind of money yeah. and build my portfolio or started building my portfolio around that.
1: Yeah, okay, so that's a really good point. First conversation with the bank, we can all have great ideas around, I want to buy something for a million dollars, the bank might have a slightly different idea.
0: You, <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, there's plenty of properties that I'll look at all the time and say, if I had the money. <laughs> if, if I had the money, if I had the money. Yeah. So, I mean, it's true, money makes money, and if you had the money, you would buy a certain property, but when, you, you, when you're applying for finance, you obviously, guided by that and you can only buy what's within your your reach and so it's getting the balance right of satisfying what the bank needs um, or will give you uh, but also achieving your property goals.
1: Yeah I think that's a key one the goals thing is what I really like so there's some property uh, professionals and, you know, uh, people that have built big portfolios that are prevalent in the media and out and about in in, in our sector. They talk about these huge portfolios, you know, from 30 to 100 or even 230 properties. That's a real um, quantity kind Mm. of approach Mm. as opposed to maybe quality. Like I've looked at some of these portfolios and. You know, there's some tiny little studio units way out the back of these regional locations and, you know, areas that there's a real lack of uh, economic stimulation and things like that. And, you know, they might have bought them for $20,000, $30,000 in the last five years. I I, I could pay more for a car. So is that a quality property? Is it going to grow? Is it going to achieve their goals? That's, you know, I think probably not. Um, So there's probably some a little little bit of, uh, maybe ego in saying, I have a hundred properties, you know, people get excited by that, but it doesn't necessarily make it a good portfolio, does it? No, true.
0: Exactly. Like you said, you want to get that balance right. You want to get, obviously you want to get uplift in it. And if you own a property for, you know, the average, you know, mortgages go for 30 years. If you plan to hold it for 30 years, obviously in that time frame or whatever you, you end up having it, you want to make some money and sell it for more than what you bought bought it for, and in the meantime, you've gotta be able to service the loan. So you wanna make sure that your your rent is, you know, as close to covering, you know, your mortgage repayment, so you're not constantly putting your hand in your pocket all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it goes for any investment. I was just looking at um, the last couple of weeks. I've been looking at some alternative investments for my own portfolio. So I've got property, we've got shares, we've got all these, you know, standards. My husband's got Bitcoin. I wouldn't. It's not my thing, but you know, yep. he gets excited about it. Um, but I've been looking yeah. at things like yeah, all right. I look at things like um, I've been looking at things like artwork, Rolexes, like these sort of more alternative style investments and um, the first thing I did, once I got my head around it a little bit, was go on and look at if anyone has tracked the data on how much they grow in value year on year, like certain artists work or Rolexes of a certain you know genre, Is there growth in the value of them? And has it been tracked and has it been monitored? And how does it compare to other assets? So you've got a benchmark, don't you, when it comes to any asset or any investment?
0: Agreed. And especially during COVID, assets like what you're talking about, um, luxury cars, luxury watches. Um, I saw an article, a TV article the other day, handbags, um, prestige handbags. All these assets have gone up in value significantly over the COVID period, people wanted to spend their money on something, fine wines, um, basketball cards, trading cards is another one, (laughs) absolutely crazy money um, being spent on this kind of stuff so yeah I mean but it's all about risk and reward and obviously you're not going to get a bank lending you money to buy a basketball card (laughs) <laughs> you've got to put that cash sitting there.
1: That's correct. And then as well, I suppose what I take away from your comments there as well is don't just look at the two years that have been the good two years. Like Look at correct. the 10 or 20 year data points, yep. and I see a lot of people do that in property. There's a lot of investment experts and gurus out there that started their property career three years ago, and they're telling everyone how they've gotten it so right. Well, the market's gotten it right, and even if yep. you've made really shitty investment decisions in the last year or two, you've probably had the market... Um, It's been very forgiving, you know, your your mistakes have been covered up, really. Um, And if you, for someone out there working with an investment expert, whether it be financial planning, accounting, property, probably having someone's got a track record through good times and bad times is pretty critical to see the performance of their asset choices. Um, One thing I want to touch on, so this is something we look at when we work with clients um, around investing. is. If they're buying, building a portfolio, what does that look like? So is it two, four, six, eight properties, right? And obviously to get six A, you've got to have a lot of capacity. Let's say it's it's three or four properties, which is achievable, it's still not what everyone can do, but it's achievable for a certain percentage of people. Um, we always look at growth versus income assets, right? And you've got that in residential, then you've got other asset classes like commercial or rooming houses, boarding houses, yep. etc., that offer, again, a different profile risk versus reward, higher risk, higher higher, rental income often. My philosophy is that when you're building a portfolio, ideally, subject to budget, getting the first property being a growth asset to anchor the portfolio, because that'll go up in value more and usually quicker if you get it right, and that helps you leapfrog into the next one, right? It builds the deposit power.
0: Yeah. Whereas
1: if you buy something that doesn't go up in value for 10 years, you're sitting with that asset with no equity, and then you've got to go save that money again somewhere. And a lot of people use that first one, it's even their own home. So they buy something in in, in an area that they love, they live there and it goes up in value. And that becomes the deposit that they can tap into to buy that first investment. And then it's looking at how we create the leapfrogging effect.
0: Yeah, and generally speaking, you know, your, your main, your, your principal place of residence is probably gonna be the most expensive. Yep. Um, and for argument's sake, it's probably in the best location. Yeah. So, it's going to have that potential to grow more and at a better rate because of the quantum evolved. And then, so say you, you live in a, a metro area and, and you buy a property for, let's just use a million dollars, you, you're probably not going to buy an investment property for one or $1.5 million, it's probably going to be more like half a million dollars. Yeah. And so the growth that you've hopefully experienced in your principal place of residence while you've been having somewhere to live as well and paying that mortgage down um you've got that um that equity within there and that will serve you well when you're going to buy a property that's a lot cheaper in Mm. relatively speaking to to your original property
1: yeah okay and then So some of the things that we look at is this growth property and then potentially income property to follow it because you you, you're going to get to a point where the lenders are going to say well we need revenue coming in off the assets yeah if you've got growth properties by nature if you're borrowing a hundred percent of the value so a high lvr loan to value ratio a lot of people do a hundred percent um inherently they'll often have a negative gearing impact right that's the that's the fallout effect of borrowing a huge amount of the value So if you've got a lot of negative gearing in your portfolio, it'll start to get on top of you financially at a point, especially with rising interest rates. So the lenders, and even just for your own peace of mind and your accountants and financial planners' peace of mind, they're probably going to want to see some income, stronger income assets in in between that. Just for context for anyone listening, the difference between an income and a growth asset. So, a growth asset will, um, say, take Sydney for example, goes up in value rather quickly because we're in an area where there's a huge amount of demand compared to supply. Um, values will increase in a usually a shorter period of time and more aggressively. And as values go up quickly, rents don't take those same jumps. So you know you might have a $300,000 increase on your value position in the last year or two, rents don't go up $300 a week in that same time right. and, and have that equilibrium. Mm-hmm. So therefore your yield or your return becomes quite low um, you know, in comparison. Go to the other extreme example, like a regional country town, an outlying area. Um, the values increase slower because you're a smaller economy, you're a smaller market. And because the values increase slower and, and are more steady over time, you'll get the rents will tend to keep pace with that fairly reasonably. You do tend to get that equilibrium. So you're often getting a, a balanced rent versus growth sort of profile. And that means you're getting a good yield, but you are in a slower growth market by well, nature.
0: Well, that's right. You might be, that regional area might be transient with, with government workers, um, police, or, or nurses. And, and so they might not want to buy. Um, In the area they might just see themselves as being there for three to five years so they rent and they pay three or four hundred thousand dollars and the the house might be worth two or three hundred thousand dollars so it's a a good rental yield but you've also got to look at long term what does that look like and where, where does it grow to and also liquidity how quickly can you get rid of it if you need to. Uh, when, when you one. decide to divest.
1: That's a big one. Because if you've got to sell a property, let's say you go buy your dream home, you've got to sell your investments quickly to, to fund that, um, you want to be able to turn them over quickly because you know sometimes you don't have the luxury of picking your timing, sometimes yeah. your life happens and you want yeah. to achieve that goal or or the opposite side of that, something's happened negatively and you've lost your job or whatever that might be, you need to fund those
2: positions. Exactly. That's why we
1: invest, right? To be able to have that safety net. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, and, and, and people often struggle to understand when you say you get less rent in capital cities or a lower yield, less rent comparative to the value, they sort of like, hold on, people in regional areas aren't gonna pay more rent, you know, but it's, it's relative to value, and Correct. it's obviously that growth profile feeds into that. What creates a, a market or an area or an asset? What creates growth? So what are the key things? If you're saying to someone, let's say, you know, your, your, your mate comes to you tomorrow at the pub and says, hey, Nick, I wanna go buy a growth asset. I'm not going to use you because you're a mate. I don't like doing business with mates, whatever whatever the reason might be. Um, tell me, what are the top five things I've got to look for? Top three things I've got to look for? What is it that's going to help me know that I'm, you know, kind of looking at a market that's got potential for growth?
0: Well, I think obviously there's government policy. Um, what, what money is being spent on an area um, to improve it and to improve the quality of life to ultimately grow the population? Because if you grow the population, um, there's going to be, simply more demand yeah so i think there's that there's elements like transport um land releases rezonings all those kind of things i think you've got to look at it holistically Um, it it is it it, generally speaking those growth one growth areas are metro areas as opposed to regional as well so you're looking at metro yeah it's
1: like you write about holistically it's like a puzzle you've got to put all the pieces together You can have an area that has low vacancy in the rental market but that you know often that'll be a reflection that there's good demand but it may not flow through to the the property sales market for whatever reason might be that there's been a big um, influx of miners to an area but once that's done and dusted and then the market can come off a bit
0: i think being able to pick something like that well um is difficult and it's kind of like the stock market if you're trying to get in and out at the right time it's all about timing And that can become difficult unless you are right on the pulse with regards to, like I said, government policy or like, you know, like you said, mining, you know, a new mine area opening up and and therefore there's going to be an influx of of people and population. Um, But there's plenty of horror stories on the other side where people have got in too late and then the mines close down and people leave and Mm -hmm. their investment, they've got negative equity in it and they go to sell it and they're still owing money at the end of the day yeah. so I think really if you're looking for a growth asset you, you like you you've, you've got to be you've got to have those solid economic underpinning that where the, the property that the like the, the location where the property is um, is going to be supported by more than one industry
1: right and that's critical, isn't it? It's not, just a one, it's not a one-trip pony for that area. You've got to have the diversity. Yeah. Yeah. And then also we talk about like infrastructure and transport corridors. So I see a lot of people jump into markets because they're putting a new road in. Um, but a road doesn't create long-term employment, does it? You get a couple of yeah. people standing by the side of the road leaning on shovels for 12 months, 18 months, and then once the road's done, the road's done, right? That's not a long-term employment generator. So not all infrastructure is going to create that growth uplift in a market. Um, whereas you know when you look at those those infrastructure plays it's things like the hospitals and um, you know like in Adelaide doing, yeah Adelaide they're doing um, a huge amount around research around the space um, NASA are, are involved in it, I believe. Uh, it's not my genre; it's my eleven-year-old son's genre. But there's a big financial investment. They've got, you know, two hospitals that are going in and gone in. They've got technology grants, as you said. What makes it livable? Why do people want to be there? Because Boeing have put their tech hub in there because the government gave them a grant to do that, as well as you know, a thousand other businesses.
0: So that's a great example of somewhere where, you know, if one of those things weren't to occur, then there's other things supporting the growth of that yep. economy. Yeah. As opposed to having one, all your eggs in one basket, and that's the same when we talk about portfolios, having a balanced portfolio, you're probably not going to buy all your properties in the same suburb, for instance. Because you want to be able to spread that risk, diversify. It's like if you're building a share portfolio, you don't buy all the shares in blue chip or in one stock. You want to spread your risk because there's, not only does it protect you in times of downturn, but it gives you more opportunity to break the returns when there's there's an uptick in a, a certain sector.
1: And then we look at that portfolio, so let's say we've got our growth um, property our anchor por- property in our portfolio, and then we might look at an a, a income asset, right? So we've maybe got like a one-for-one one approach or a two-for-two, yep. two, something like that to kind of get that balance. And, and when we look at that long-term play, let's say we've got a growth and income, and growth and income, when you go to retire, you might sell your growth assets that have got all the equity in them to pay off the debt on Correct. your income assets yep. to turn that into really strong lo- real-time cash flow. Yep. It's not cash flow if you've got heaps of debt there. It's, mm-hmm. it's an you know, extra $50 a week. Does that change our lives when we retire? I don't know about you, but not for me. Um, so we want to turn it into a really strong cash flow position. Um, you know, then what's that risk and reward thing? So like we, t- we talk about residential only has a certain amount of return you can get in a standard house, right? It might be five or 6% in a regional area. But we're getting into outlying locations. We might introduce some vacancy issues or yep. some questionable tenant profiles in some areas. Um, but then there's a whole other range of assets, like your boarding houses, your commercial assets. You know, there's so many other um, blocks of flats on the one title, um, you know, heap of, a heap of other assets. Absolutely. Are we starting to introduce other risk factors now? Like, what is that? You might get eight or nine. But you know, your NDAs stuff, your disability sector. That there's a there's a lot of income that can be captured there. But again, there's a lot of risk through a whole range of elements, which is a podcast itself. Um, I think I've actually done that one already. Mm. Um, but in your opinion, when you're tapping into these more, uh, yeah, I'd sort of call them the out-of-the-box out sort of asset classes, not everyone's buying a boarding house next week. You know, the stuff that's more sophisticated, more complicated. If you can get that eight, 10, 12% yield, service department, for example, all those sort of yep. things, um, what risk factors could you be looking at?
0: Well, like you said, vacancy is definitely one. Um, we say using service departments as an example. Um, Tenant profile is a big one. When you're talking, say, boarding houses and things like that, It is a, they are made up of um, smaller properties, a lot of smaller properties within the one title, and they're generally rented, boarding houses are generally re- you know, rented at less than what a standard apartment might rent for in the same area just due to its size. And so um, part of that is that because it's smaller, it's cheaper, it's going to attract a different tenant. So
1: So you could be at risk of having the tenant in the area that can only afford the cheapest, cheapest, cheapest thing, which might, in some cases, be a certain profile tenant. And sometimes we see these deals done with, um, you know, where they might partner with uh, local um, groups where they're taking people straight out of prison scenarios or people out of high-risk scenarios or people out of drug rehabs. This is their next step back into society into these types of accommodations. Um, so you, you, can, you can end up with some challenges there, can't
0: you? you can, but it's just about being, like, there's obviously a, a place for each of those assets in, in society and within people's portfolios. And, and it's just about being aware of it, doing your research, understanding it. Um, and, and if you're going to embark on something like that that you've got the stomach for it. You know, you might have to wear a bit of vacancy and if you don't have the stomach for it, maybe it's not for you. But I think that, you know, setting out, um, having a plan um, by speaking with your financial planner and your bank will definitely put you in the, you know, in the right direction, and, and and at the end of the day, those other assets, like you talk, you know, they they come into sort of commercial lending, and there's larger deposits required, higher interest rates, and again, not not everyone's going to be able to get that kind of finance, and so um, those type of assets will only probably come later in. A portfolio as opposed to the first one in your portfolio
1: so it comes down to capacity and understanding and experience start with something that's vanilla and boring because yeah. vanilla and boring can be what sets you up really well but and it does work into... because it's
0: like that's 90% of properties
1: yeah and and that's your, that's your broader market yeah. right and then you move into stuff that's a little bit more complex as you learn more and as you have bigger capacity. And as the bank goes with you on that journey, like right. you said, like I know service departments, back when I was valuing them back in the day, I think the banks were only about 50 or 60% of VR, which is quite low comparative to other assets i will go to 80, 90, 90, 95% on. Yep. So the bank see it as a risk factor, then you should take heed of that and understand that you're in a different asset class.
0: Exactly, and it's like, yeah, service departments, dual-key apartments, um, they usually got, Uh, really good facilities within the building. And so your gross rent might look fantastic, but then when you actually look at what your net rent is, uh, more than half of it can be eaten away by by strata levies and building maintenance. Um, And so you've got to look at what that actual yield is on a net rate um, compared with other asset classes and whether or not it's actually a worthwhile um, venture for you.
1: And look, being in the industry and in in the market right now, very proactively with our team, I'd probably give our listeners one top tip at the moment. If you're buying any investment property in currently, outside of commercial, commercial's a bit different again, but you know, anything that looks residential and has a residential element to it, or residential use if the yields over about five five and a half percent at the moment grows you're probably introducing risk factors that you may not even realize you, you're probably getting into something regional something might have vacancy issues something has a tenant profile it, you know consideration lower socio so, socioeconomic demographics yeah. there's a range of, of risk factors that again might be perfectly fine for you but if you've got someone an agent or a buyer's agent a seller's agent anyone saying here's an investment property it's got a Sort of five and a half or six plus percent yield and it's really low risk and there's nothing you need to really worry about they're probably not giving you the full story are they you probably need to sit back and go all right i need the information around what am i what am i taking on here and am i okay with that
0: exactly it's all about doing your research um speaking to more than one person you know obviously if you f- feel that you're know an area well enough that you're confident to do it yourself Um, you know you still want to speak with multiple agents and and look at multiple properties and if you're engaging the services of of a buyer's agent you know ask them those tough tough questions and go through it with them and and do your own research as well but also listen to what you know they're professionals they do it for a living Um, sometimes people hear what they want to hear um, and they've got a pre um, conception of what what they want to end up with, um, but it's just about being open to suggestions from, from professionals. So speaking to your accountant, um, finding out the tax implications, speaking to a financial planner, you might have a plan to buy, build your portfolio to X properties or X income, um, and and it's important to have a plan because if you don't you you just sort of finding your ways you go and, and you, you may or may not get there. If you've got a plan you might you still still might not get there, but it gives you that motivation to really go after it. Because it is a big job doing it, but it's you've got to get it right because, you know, using the example before of a, a five hundred thousand dollar purchase, it's expensive to buy and sell property. Yeah. So you want to make sure that the property suits you and your portfolio for, you know, however many years you plan to hold it and that you'll be able to recover those costs and more because to, sell, to buy and sell a property is extremely expensive.
1: I think that gives us a lot of information to take away. Thank you, Nick. So we have a special guest today, Melanie from Indigo Finance, who is fantastic. I've known Melanie for a very long time. I've got some questions that I'm going to throw over to Melanie. So the first one is, um, could you run us through the importance of having a strategy behind your finance that ties in with
2: your property and long-term goals? And hi Anna, thanks so much for having me on the Property Experience podcast. Um, It's a pleasure to be here um, and to be able to hopefully share some valuable information, which will help people in their property journey, especially around the finance side of things. I am the director of Indigo Finance, and I've had the business for 11 years now. Um, so there's definitely a lot of things that I've seen in my time. Um, we specialise in working with clients um, to help to either grow their property portfolios or buy property from the financing side and um, to look at how they can do things strategically so that they can reach their goals. Um, so we work with clients in the residential space um, and also in the commercial space, um, you know, across a board panel of lenders, Um, And yeah, like I say, our passion is really, really helping our clients to achieve their goals through having the right finance strategy in place. Yeah, having a well-thought-through finance strategy can, we find, be make or break in achieving your property goals. While we know that finance isn't often, you know, the the sexy part of it and that, you know, that's all about buying the property and that's the exciting part, having the right finance strategy can really be critical um, when you are looking at, let's say, building a long-term portfolio um, because at the end of the day, if you're finding properties and, you know, they're great opportunities, and you may be really, really good in in that space and getting a good return. If you can't raise the finance for that property, then that's going to be the end, um, essentially, of your ability to be able to execute on your strategy. And so, yeah, while having a finance strategy may not sound too exciting, it can be really, really critical to being able to continue and to achieve your goals. One of the key things that we find is that it actually starts from the very beginning. So often we find, you know, a number of clients, um, it may be relatively easy, for instance, for getting finance for your first property. Um, But this is the time when it's really, really critical to think about what is gonna be your long-term goals and what you're looking to achieve. Um, So fundamental to this is, A, knowing what your property goals are and what you're looking to work towards um, so that we can then structure the finance behind that. Um, Because what we often find is, you're generally gonna run out of one or two things. It's either gonna be borrowing capacity or it's gonna be your ability to keep funding deposits and your equity side of things. So for us being able to know, you know, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, which one might you run out of first um, can help us to actually structure finance from the very beginning, that's gonna be setting you up to be able to continue with your strategy. And so one of the things that can be really important is actually having a really good think about your property goals for the longer term and what you can achieve, want to achieve. And, you know, we know that things can change over time. But for instance, you know, being able to come and work with your finance strategist on knowing, you know, what kind of properties you might be wanting to buy, you know, how many properties that you might be wanting to buy and over what period of time can help us to then help you to structure your finance accordingly.
1: I also wanna know how critical is it having a long-term goal when actually setting up your finances? Is that part of the process to look further ahead than just the loan you're getting today?
2: Having a long-term goal when setting up your finances is highly critical because the implications of getting it wrong could mean you cannot continue in your property portfolio or you know growing with wealth and um, for instance some of the implications also could mean that you're going to be let's say stuck stuck with certain lenders um, stuck with loan types that are going to hold you back um, it could mean that you're locked into a costly loan structure um, we've even seen cases where clients might have to sell properties in order to undo things because they haven't got it right from the finance in the start so they haven't done things strategically So having the right finance strategy can be really, really critical to being able to avoid these risks and help you to de-risk so that you can continue growing your portfolio. One of the things I think that's really important to remember also is that your finance strategy is personal to you. So often, you know, especially in Australia, we love to have a good chat around the barbecue, um, but sometimes that can be one of the most dangerous places because someone else's finance strategy might not be what's right for you. So... Actually looking at your goals, like I say, looking at, you know, what are your strengths and weaknesses um, and working with somebody who's going to be able to look at things strategically for you can be really critical when it comes down to, for instance, let's say the choice of lender you know, the type of loan that you're going to be going for, you know, how much are you borrowing, for instance? You know, sometimes our clients, even though they don't need to borrow, um, you know, a certain amount of money, we might still actually do it from a strategic perspective um, and keep their cash in the bank and do something like an offset account so they're not, you know, paying interest on the money, but just because that might actually set them up better for when they're looking at, for instance, acquiring their next property. The importance of reviewing your portfolio. So, for instance, if you've got a you know a number of investment properties at times like this where interest rates are increasing, we've got fixed rates rolling off, we've got interest interest only periods that might be rolling off, where we're going to be jumping to substantially higher repayments because of the intra- increase in interest rates. It now is a really really important time that we're doing with a lot of our clients. Is actually doing portfolio reviews so that we can ensure that they are in the best position and that they are set up and that they are feeling comfortable. Um, you know, because while we've had a few rate increases, we haven't really yet seen the effect in you know from a cash flow perspective of what it's actually going to feel in your pocket. And if you've got a few different loans, and you know, then we're seeing these interest rate increases, and you might be rolling from a interest rate of let's say two percent, and you're suddenly rolling onto you know something at four percent that's a big difference, you know, that's going to start making quite an impact. So what we're doing with a lot of our clients now is doing those portfolio reviews so that they are feeling comfortable and it's not a surprise when their repayments increase so that they can A, take stock and make sure they're in the best position, but also be setting themselves up, you know, let's say for that next purchase so that they know that they're in a comfortable position to do so. When it comes to you know, applying for a loan, there are a lot of documents that are needed. You know, there can be a lot of information. Um, you know, and we recognize that we're all time poor, um, you know, and gathering this information can sometimes feel like an arduous task, you know? But the one thing I can say is really take the time, you know, to ensure that that data is correct. You know, if it is living expenses, take the time to make sure that you are giving your finance broker the correct information and all the information that they need so that they can do a really good job for you. Because the more information that they have will allow them to be able to make really good finance recommendations rather than trying to just piece information together. Like if you can provide all of the information holistically and the correct data, um, you know, really have a think if there were any credit cards that you've missed or, you know, any expenses, then that can actually allow your finance broker then to provide really good solutions.
1: Lastly, I'm really keen to understand at what point does the bank say, nope, enough? You know, no more finance for you. And, and is there any way that people can actually work around that a little bit? You know, what, what do you do when you get a no from the bank? Is there is there something you can set yourself up for to get a yes in the future? Walk us through that, Mel.
2: At what point does the bank say enough? OK, so this can vary a lot um, depending on different positions. But one of the, I think, you know, one of the key things generally, it, it comes to borrowing capacity. Right. Um, the, the thing that we find a lot of people might come up against is, especially when they're building larger portfolios, um, that when you've got a lot of lending, the banks don't just look at what the actual repayments are. So even though from a cash flow perspective, you know, you may feel that you're in a position that you can keep going. And when the banks look at things and they're adding 3% on top of your rates and also treating everything at principal and interest that can paint a very different picture, especially if you're carrying a number of loans. You know, the other thing to consider is the banks don't always use 100% of income, for instance, rental income is shaved, you know, bonus income is shaved. And so things don't always paint the true picture that you might be feeling from a cash flow perspective. And so when does the bank say enough? Um, they have their ways of assessing things and you know once they meet that criteria where they feel that there is a negative surplus then that's essentially when the bank is going to say no what does that mean though and can you work around that the first thing I'd say is not all banks are equal so just because you go to one bank let's say and they for instance say no that doesn't mean that there's not another bank out there that would be able to help you So banks can differ in the way that they assess loans. They can differ in the way that they treat income. They can differ in the way that they treat your existing liabilities. You know, there are so many different aspects to it that sometimes we can find that borrowing capacity might be dramatically different between one bank and another. And that also brings up, I think, the subject, you know, a lot of of times we find clients think, can I go to a non-bank lender? you know, is that going to increase my borrowing capacity if I go to a non-bank lender? Going to a non-bank lender doesn't directly necessarily mean that your borrowing capacity is going to be higher just because you're going to a non-bank. But one of the key things here is sometimes splitting your lending across different lenders can be beneficial. Um, In going to a non-bank that maybe, for instance, instead of adding 3% onto your repayments of your existing loans, they might take the actual repayments, or they might only have a smaller buffer of, let's say 20% of what that repayment amount is. So that's when sometimes these non-bank lenders can have policies that can be really useful um, you know, to allow you to maximize your borrowing capacity. But there's lots of other differences between lenders. Um, you know, the, that can be utilised. The trick is being able to know them all. <laughs> so, you know, the biggest tip I'd say there is obviously, you know, work with, work with the broker um, who is experienced also in what you're doing. Um, work with a broker that's got experience across different lenders um, and is going to be able to navigate these things for you um, you know it's not about submitting 20 applications and seeing which lender comes back with an approval it's about really ensuring that your position is, is vetted beforehand um, so that your your finance broker is able to then review options that are going to maximise your borrowing capacity, um, you know, in line with what your overall strategy is and do so safely at the same time. Right. Um, Because one of the key things is you always want to make sure that you're comfortable, um, you know, in your debt position and also looking at, you know, what if interest rates do rise and how is that going to affect me? Because the last thing we ever want when it comes to, you know, property and finance is being forced to, let's say, sell a property. Because then you're not timing it and you're not in control of that. So we always want to be structuring our finance, keeping that in mind, doing things, for instance, like keeping a buffer. You know, sometimes we might borrow just a little bit more so that we've then got that as a buffer in the account. So that should you not have a tenant, for instance, an investment property, then we can actually use that to be able to, um, let's say, fund repayments for a short period of time, you know, if we needed to just so that we can ensure that you are, um, you know, in control of what you're doing and your finances supporting your overall strategy. And something that's very topical at the moment too is is assessment rates. So an assessment rate is um, how the bank is viewing the debts that you're taking on with them. Um, And like I say, whatever the interest rates are, they'll generally be putting a margin on top, typically it's around 3%. So what we're finding at the moment is, as interest rates are rising, so are the bank's assessment rates as well. So what you were able to borrow a year ago may have dramatically changed now. And we're finding a number of clients are actually quite surprised by how their borrowing capacity has been affected. So things that we can do to navigate this are, first of all, not all banks are equal, as I mentioned. So different banks have different assessment rates. So this is something that we can consider. The other thing is building a bit of buffer in so that we are you know, being comfortable when there are rate rises. And, you know, something that I would urge anyone out there, for instance, that's got a pre-approval at the moment is be checking in with your bank, be checking in with your broker to make sure if there has been an increase in an assessment rate, that that has not affected you. Because there are some banks out there that even if you're pre-approved, when you go out there and find the property, they will then apply the assessment rate at that time which if you've gone out to an auction and you let's say have committed unconditionally to a property purchase on the basis of getting an amount of money and then go back to the bank and they say actually no we can't lend you as much that could be really really detrimental so I would urge anybody out there in these changing times of rates to be really careful and just be checking in if you've got a pre-approval actually what does that mean and if there is an increase in interest rates is that going to affect that approval amount at all so, are there ways to set yourself up for a yes in the future and um, yeah absolutely um you know one of the key things i would say is you know if you do get a no let's say from a bank that doesn't mean it's going to be no for for the longer term and there absolutely are things that you can do to get yourself into um, a good position and one of the key things i'd say is you know work with a finance broker they're going to know the best way to do so and i think also looking at this before you go to apply for finance so before you get that no because if you're working with a good finance broker, they should be able to vet it before it goes to the bank and before you get that no. Because one of the things you want to be careful of is ensuring that you're not you know, uh, applying for too many loans that is then affecting your credit scoring. Um, a lot of the banks are heavily relying on um, what they call CCR, looking at repayment conduct um, you know, and your credit file in order to determine your credit worthiness. This is actually more so than they've ever done before. So in order to set yourself up, what I would say, first of all, get a copy of your credit file, have a look and make sure that you know what's on that credit file before the lender sees it. Make sure that you are keeping all your repayments in order. You know, we had a client who, you know, had plenty of cash flow, plenty of cash in the bank, but because they'd actually gone overdrawn on an account and it had shown and they had a missed repayment and that had shown on their credit file, the lender was actually hesitant to lend full stop even though they were in a great position and this was only an administrative error so one of the key things i'd say is be keeping really on top of that and being aware of that and making sure that your payment conduct is immaculate the other thing you can do is um you know to get yourself um prepared for a yes in the future keep an eye on expenses and um, you know, expenses have been quite a hot topic. Um, you know, with the banks. So I think just keeping a bit of an eye on your budget and your expenses, and if there are, the, you know, a number of large expenses that you're making. Um, You know, just keeping a note of that and maybe keeping them from a separate account, you know, to where your normal cash flow goes through. Um, You know, this can really come in, I think, also if you are a business owner. You know, one of the biggest things sometimes that we see is um, if you're a business owner, that you might have personal expenses flowing through your business accounts um, and your personal accounts as well. When actually those are business expenses, but if they're thrown through your personal accounts and then you go for a loan with the bank and there's all these expenses, it can actually look like your personal living expenses are higher than they actually are. And that could lead to them maybe being double counted, not only in your personal, but they're also business expenses in your tax returns as well. So one of the key things I would say if you are, for instance, a sole trader or a business owner is keep your business expenses in your business account and keep your personal in your personal account. And um, what else could you do to set yourself up for the future? Um, keep an eye on, let's say, if you're taking out new credit facilities, often we see car loans are a big one, um, you know, that can dramatically affect your borrowing capacity. So have a chat with your finance broker you know, before you're actually looking at taking on these facilities um, and see what the impact is gonna be so that you can decide if then that suits and what's most important from, from a strategy perspective for you. There is so much changing, In the market at the moment like even for us you know and we're dealing with this all day long so i cannot imagine somebody for instance that's going direct to bank like i almost think the days of being able to go direct to bank are actually over (laughs) because there are so many complications there are so many intricacies to things you know that that to ensure you are in the right position and to ensure that you're not taking too many risks like it's really really important you know to be working with somebody when
1: We'll uh, we'll call that a wrap on another Property Experience podcast.
0: Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.